Hello, this is Brian Lane, lead pastor of FAM Church, and this is our podcast. Sunday we began a study through the book of James, and so join us as we begin our verse-by-verse study by looking at trials in life. This morning we are starting our series on the book of James, and uh, gotta tell you, it starts off hot and fast, so I hope you're ready for this, because you're going to get a whole lot of in-your-face Jesus on the very first Sunday, and so that has me a little bit concerned, because not everybody likes in-your-face Jesus. They like the nice, kind, gentle Jesus that kisses you on the cheek and doesn't slap you across the face, okay? And uh, we're going to be studying uh, this whole book uh, of the book of James, and I've never done this on a Sunday morning, so I do have some concern in that, in that one time I did it on a Wednesday night, and it was the book of First Peter, and uh, the whole book is about trials. Well, after 10 weeks of going through trials, you started to say the same stuff over and over and over again, and so it was like basically the same message every Wednesday night. And so I'm just hoping I don't get into that kind of rut with James, and if we do, I may change it up. We may not finish the book. If it doesn't get like that, who knows? This may take uh, a couple of, or several months uh, to work through, but we'll just see. We'll go along with what uh, God has for us, and I'm also hoping that this is going to connect with people who are new to church as well as people who have been in the church for a long time because, you know, that's always the challenge in in delivering a message on a Sunday morning is connecting with both groups of people and both groups of people walking away getting something uh, from the message. And so we're going to start off this morning by laying a foundation and uh, talking about the name of the book that we're going to be looking at. The name of the book is James, okay? And so I'm assuming that all of you are smart enough in here to figure out that it probably got its name from some dude's name, right? We all, we all figured that out, right? Some dude named James must have written this, um, and that's how it got his name. But what James is the question, because what we got to know is that that name at that time was super popular. It was like if we named a book, I don't know, Mike today, okay? I mean, it's like there's 15 people who could probably stand up in this room who have that name, have that first name, have that middle name, whatever. It was a very popular name. And so some, some people who researched this sort of thing decided that they were going to dig into this and kind of try and find out uh, who it was, who they thought that wrote the Bible, who, or who wrote this book of James, because, I mean, all he did was put his first name on there. We don't have a last name, we don't have a where he was from, we don't have a what he was doing, we do not have any of that sort of stuff, and so the conclusion that they draw is this James must have been an important James, so important that he could have just given his first name and everybody knew who they were talking about. Well, if you look at all the James that appear in the New Testament, there's only two names that actually come to mind, two Jameses that come to mind that can actually fit this bill. And the first one is James, the brother of John, uh, um, the guy who wrote the book of John. Okay, he had a brother named James, and he was important uh, in the New Testament time. However, James was beheaded at an early point. You find his beheading in the book of Acts. I believe it's Acts chapter 12. Um, He's killed by Herod the Great. Uh, It cuts off his head. And so um, they're thinking, well, he wasn't around long enough to write this book. And so, who could the other James be? The conclusion is that this was James, the brother of Jesus. Why do they conclude that? Uh, Because first of all, James was one of the people that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. Okay, it tells us that um, in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 7. Paul called Jesus' brother James a pillar of the church in Galatians 2, 9. Paul, after he gave his life to Jesus, went to Jerusalem to meet with Jesus' brother James, Galatians 1.9. 
James was also a leader at the Jerusalem council that happened in Acts 15 and made the judgment that those who were not Jews should be welcomed into the faith and not be told they had to follow the Old Testament laws. Plus, James, the brother of Jesus, eventually became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. So the assumption that we're going to make going forward is this. We're going to assume that the James, the person who wrote this book, is James, the brother of Jesus, because he had the clout, he had the authority, he had the power to be able to write a book, write his name on it, James, pass it out, and everybody knew what was going on and who they were talking about. And so let's move on to the contents of the letter, and we're going to open up with the first verse this morning. You know, right? Duh, that makes sense, right? If you're studying your way through a book, you should look at the first verse. And if you're not familiar with the book of James, you don't have a Bible, you don't know where any of this stuff is at, we got you covered. It's going to be on the screen behind me for you to follow along. But uh, we're going to be in James 1, verse 1, to start off with. And this is what it says there. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes, scattered among the nations. All right, so this is how James kind of introduces himself. It's not a revolutionary, anything revolutionary that he says here. It's just James telling us who is writing this and who he sent it to. But there's one very important thing I want to talk about before we move on to the main part of this letter. James calls himself a servant of God. And if you were to read in other parts of the New Testament, James is not the only person who uses this salutation or uses this phrase about himself, servant of God. If you were to look at the books that Paul wrote, a lot of those letters that Paul wrote, they say the same thing, Paul, a servant of God, Paul, a servant of Christ. Peter, when he was writing to whoever he wrote through, he said the same thing, Peter, a servant of God, Peter, a servant of Jesus. So it was a common introduction that people used in that time to refer to themselves. And see, when we hear this word servant, we've got all kinds of ideas and images that come into our head when we think of a servant, right? You know, you've got this idea of maybe a a guy dressed in a suit or a tuxedo with some white gloves on and a silver tray, and he's carrying around drinks or snacks or whatever you may want, and he comes up to you, would you like a snack? Would you like a drink? Would you, you know, they come around, they kind of, they kind of just serve you. Or maybe you've got the image in your head of the, uh, of of the woman wearing the, the black dress with the white thing on the front, and she's carrying a feather duster around in her hands, and it's like, Madam, there's some dust over there. Could you please get that? And she, oh, yes. She runs away. You know, that's kind of the pictures I get in my head when I hear this word servant. And, you know, when we think of a servant, you know, there's people who have servants today. And servants are just like any other sort of job. They, they get paid for what they do. There's laws that govern them and, uh, and how many hours they can work, how much they can get paid, their vacation time, all of this. You know, all of this falls under the regular rules of somebody who has a job. And what we need to do this morning is to erase these images from our mind to understand what this servant was back at the time Jesus or James wrote these words. See, the word that was used here that ended up being translated servant is the Greek word doulos. This word was used for only one thing in the Roman world, and it was not a servant. It was a word used for a slave. Now, the reason that most Bible translators do not translate this word slave and instead translate it servant is because they are very aware, and this has been going on since they translated the Bible out of, out of the Latin and into English and other languages. So it's been going on for hundreds of years, but the translators were very well aware of the image that would pop into someone's mind if it said James, a slave of Jesus Christ. 
Christ. See, they felt that that term, using that word slave, was too demeaning and too derogatory to be used in the context of the scripture. And what they were afraid would happen is if they put this, James, a slave, Paul, a slave, Peter, a slave, that other people would look at this text and say to themselves, I find that so offensive, I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. But there's no getting around this word. The word means slave. And for James, that's exactly the image he wanted people to understand. Now, slavery in the Roman Empire was different from what the American experience of slavery was. See, their understanding of it in New Testament times was just radically different from what a lot of us comprehend as slavery, okay? First of all, in the Roman Empire, slavery was not about owning people and treating them as less than human beings, treating them like animals. For a lot of people that time, uh, slavery was a financial necessity. Most people who ended up in slavery in the Roman Empire actually ended up there because they had to, because they had debts and financial obligations that they had to pay, and the only way that they could pay them was to sell themselves to another person to pay off these debts. Many times there was time frames, depending upon how much money this person owed, there was time frames attached to the, the amount of time that they would be a slave. And so they would sell themselves for 10 years. I mean, if they owed enough money, it would be, uh, they'd be a slave for this person to, for life. But in the Roman Empire, you could earn extra money as a slave, and you could buy your own freedom. Slaves were also legally part of the family, although on a secondary level. The law required owners to provide their slaves with food, clothing, and shelter. There were legal penalties for mistreating slaves. Uh, we think of slaves living in leaky shacks in the fields, but in the Roman days, slaves lived in the house with the family. If an owner fell on hard financial times and he had to release his slave, by law, he had to make sure that that slave could financially support themselves if he released them from their duty as a slave. He could be charged if he didn't. In many cases, if a slave was a trusted friend and companion and had a good sense of for business, he would be adopted as a son. Because under the legal system, sons inherently possessed the power of attorney for their fathers and could conduct business on their behalf. And so adopting a, clap- a capable slave as a son was a way of acquiring a good and loyal business manager. And this happened on a regular basis and the Roman Empire. And I want you to remember these pieces because as we get deeper into the text here, we're going to see how all of this plays out in our relationship with Jesus. Now, it's still a relationship where one person is owned by another person, right? They had only one person in life that they had to answer to, the owner, and that person had complete say in their life. But here's the deal and how it relates to our spiritual life. Because in life, we have to know this fact. We are a slave whether we believe it or not. We are either a slave to sin or we are a slave to God. The scripture gives us no other options in life. 
I know a lot of people like to think that they're a free agent and that they play apart from those two rules, but the Bible does not give us that ability to play free and loose like that. The only thing we can be is either a slave to sin or a slave to God. And that's the reason that James, Paul, and others said that they were a slave to God because they were very well aware of the image that this word portrayed. It meant that they had one exclusive owner, and that owner was Jesus and not sin. He had purchased them from slavery to sin, and because he had purchased them from a dark place, they were thankful and fully committed to serving him the rest of their life. They also knew that they were totally dependent upon Jesus for everything. They were going to go where he asked and do what he asked them to do because they were thankful and grateful for being purchased out of their slavery to sin and they felt like there was no other response that they could have. They were purchased by Jesus and he owned every part of them. And what they were inferring as well was because that was their state, That was everyone else's state who followed Jesus as well. Jesus had bought us and paid for our life with his, and because of that, our life should be be completely and totally his. It doesn't belong to us any longer. It isn't joint ownership. We really don't even have a say in it at all. See, in the modern church, we've gotten lost in this concept of Jesus and who he is. Jesus is no longer our Lord, but Jesus is now our homeboy, right? Y'all seen those shirts, Jesus is my homeboy? Anybody got a Jesus is my homeboy shirt? No? Okay. Sam's got one? All right. (laughs) But anyways, you know... Jesus, we look at him and instead of him being the person who paid the penalty for our sin and therefore we are walking totally and completely with him, he's the dude who walks alongside of us to make sure that our life is good, to make sure that our life goes in the direction that we want it to, to make sure that nothing bad happens to us, to make sure that anything that we want that we don't think is sin, he gets it for us because that's what a good parent does for their kid. Jesus has become the guy who loves us and wants to make sure we have the best of everything in this life because that's what love is about. But that's not what the New Testament tells us. See, it tells us that Jesus is our Lord and we are his slaves. You might be thinking, well, wait, doesn't the Bible say other things about our relationship with Jesus? Doesn't it talk about us being a friend of God someplace in there? We sing that song, I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. Okay. So, yes, we are his friends, but let me read that text to you, okay? It is found in John chapter 15, verse 14, and it says this. Listen carefully to these words. You are my friends if you do what I command you. We are his friends if we do what he commands us? How many of you all got friends like that? You're only friends as long as you do what they command you to do. Anybody got friendships like that? You might not want to raise your hand, okay? <laughs> that's, that's not good. That's not healthy, okay? We don't, we don't want the friends that, that are commanding us around and telling us, and you know, because friendships like that, they really don't last long unless you are into unhealthy relationships. But see, the next verse is key to understanding this idea. Verse 15 tells us that Jesus no longer calls us slaves. 
He's talking beyond that. I have called you friends. What makes the difference? The assumption here is that we are slaves. He says that straight up. The difference is that we've also become friends. What's the distinction between being a slave and being a slave who's also friends? See, when you're a slave who's also friends, the, the owner talks about his mission, his purpose, his goals, his plans, why he's doing what he's doing. When you're just a slave, the owner doesn't have to tell you those things. He says, do it, do this, do that, do this other thing, and you're supposed to do it. But see, when you become a slave who's also a friend, he communicates with you on his plans and his purposes and his life and his direction, his strategy, his big picture of what he's doing. He's going to let us in on the inside secrets. See, we are not just friends with Jesus in the way we think. We are slaves that are also friends. And people right now might be a little concerned with me because why not only did I think we were friends, but I thought we were adopted sons and daughters and that God loved us beyond now all we can know or comprehend. So I want you to think about it like this since it's Super Bowl Sunday. I had to try and figure. So this isn't a perfect illustration, okay? Um, so, um, I, but I just had to work football in. All right, suppose Jesus is looking to uh, pick up a football franchise. He's looking to purchase a franchise. And there's a franchise that is just a dumpster fire. We'd use the Cleveland Browns as an example, but they actually had a good year this year. And so we won't use them as the example of a dumpster fire. But uh, so, so let's say there's just this team. They're just an absolute wreck. And Jesus is like, man, I can't take that wreck, that mess. I will come and I am going to buy all of these players' contracts and make them a part of my team. So he goes in and he buys all of their contracts and becomes the owner of these players. When he buys it, just because he's bought the contract and they're free from that old owner doesn't mean that these people are free. See, the obligation has shifted from their old owner to the new. See, then in an act of further mercy, Jesus makes them all co-owners of the team. He makes them friends. He makes them adopted sons and daughters, and they become the first player-owned team in the league. But Jesus retains the controlling interests. So the players are employees and owners at the same time. In the same way, Jesus found us as slaves to sin. He bought us which made us his slaves. He then adopted us as sons of God. And that means that just like in the Roman world, we become God's adopted sons and daughters, God's business agents in this world. We now, now have the power of attorney with God and with Jesus here on this earth to work in this world. But ultimately, Jesus retains all of the controlling interests in our life. So we are owned by God, we are friends of God, and we are sons and daughters of God all at the same time. And I've said all of that in regards to slaves, friends, and sons and daughters to say this. We have become believers who have forgotten that we are not in charge. We lean so heavily on the fact that God loves us and God has adopted us as sons and daughters that we have completely forgotten that there is another aspect to our relationship with Jesus. 
See, Jesus is still our owner. Jesus is still calling the shots. It's just that now we are his friends that know the reason behind what he is doing, but beyond that, he has adopted us because he wants us to have that power of attorney in this world. We are not free agents. We've been bought with a price. We are owned, and as we go through our day, as we go through the weeks, months, and years, we need to remember that. Jesus is not our homeboy. Jesus is the Lord of this universe that bought us out of slavery to sin, but was loving and kind enough to adopt us as his sons and daughters. He did that because he wanted us to be about his business and his business only with our life. He wanted us to live on the mission that he has given of connecting people to Christ. So let's continue reading in the book of James. We're going to be reading verses 2 through 4 in chapter 1. And this is what it says. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. All right, so he jumps right in and says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. How many of you wanted to hear that when you walked in the door this morning? Your thought was, yes, I want to hear that my trials are so joyful. Most of us don't want that, do we? We don't want to hear anything about joy happening in the difficult and tough circumstances we face in life. James is writing to a group of people who were facing persecution and death because of their faith. These were men and women that were being arrested, that were being thrown in jail, that were being tortured, and that were being killed because they decided to follow Jesus. That was the only reason they were going through what they were going through. And we don't face those kind of trials in life. We, we have different things that we go through in 2019, you know? We face the trials that our car won't run properly and we don't have the money to fix it. And so we're constantly wondering if our vehicle is going to start and we're going to be able to make it to work to be able to get our paycheck. We face the trials of, you know, maybe a family member is facing battles with illness, or maybe I'm facing a battle with an illness. You have kids that are living their lives addicted to terrible things that are destroying them. And we could sit here all afternoon and just think through the various reasons that we go through trials and why those trials don't bring us joy, but that's not what James is trying to get at here. I think James is saying three things in this section. The first thing that he is saying is this, we are all going to face trials, See, that's the reality of life. Trials and tough times are going to happen, and there's nothing we can do to avoid it. See, we try to do everything we can to to keep ourselves and to keep our kids and our family from going through trials, right? We try to keep pain, we try to keep hurt, we try to keep anything difficult out of people's lives. I mean, you just think about how much things have changed since I was a kid. You know, it used to be, when I was a kid, we played on monkey bars over asphalt, okay? Now monkey bars are pretty much banned everywhere. Kids do not have the joy and pleasure of falling off of monkey bars, all right? I mean, that's just the way life is. Kids, um, 
they got to wear helmets now when they're riding a bike. I never had to wear a helmet when I was riding my bike, okay? I went over my handlebars one time. I slammed my head into the curb. I had to get stitches across my forehead. You know, that's just kind of how life was. And my mom and dad were just like, you know, you, I come home with blood running down my face, and it's like, well, let's try and clean it up here first before we go to the ER. I mean, it was, that's just how, nowadays, it's like, we're going to the ER. Our kid coughed four times instead of three. We got to get to the ER now. You know, that, that's kind of how we are these days. One time, this is my favorite story of when I was a kid. My dad left me in the car with it running while he ran into a McDonald's when I was three. And so I moved over, shifted the car into reverse, and tried to drive away in the McDonald's parking lot. Um, nowadays, you would have totally had uh, social services called on you if, uh, if you did that with a child, uh, leaving them in the car. But we do everything we can to prevent and avoid trials and problems in our life. But no matter how hard we try and prevent it, trials are going to come. Okay, hold on, sorry, this did something weird here. I gotta find where I was at. What on earth? It keeps skipping back to the top. And so God allows these trials. But there is a reason for the trials that we face. And the first reason is to develop perseverance in us. Perseverance is persistence in doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving success. We live in a world where persistence is rapidly becoming a lost art form. I am so surprised at how many young people finish college or finish their career training and they think that they're all of a sudden going to get a job getting paid as much as their mom and dad make after 25 years of working at a job. And they get frustrated and angry because they can't go out and buy a 3,000 square foot house, a boat, a $50,000 pickup truck, and all of this stuff when they get their jobs. Because our kids have not learned what it's like to be persistent. See, we want success, money, fame, and all of that other stuff, and we want it now. We can't wait for it. Why is there so many fast food restaurants in this world? We can't wait for something to be cooked at home or cooked at a restaurant. It's far easier to go through a drive-thru and have something that's been sitting in a window for 10 minutes, put in a bag, and we eat that instead. It's kind of scary. Guys, stop eating so much fast food. That's all I'm saying here. All right. Anyway, um, we just don't have the perseverance that we used to. I mean, video games, it, I, this is one of those things where I'm just like, kids get these video games and they like spend the next week beating the video game and they, you know, they, they work super, they, they level up and beat video games. They're leveling up 10, 12, 14 times in one night and they, they go into life thinking that they're going to be able to level up 12, 14, 16 times in a day at their job, that they're going to walk in and start flipping burgers and by the end of the week they're going to be the manager, Perseverance. See, that's the key in our walk with Jesus. Perseverance and making it to the end. Jesus is not about instant satisfaction like we are. Our walk with Jesus is not a video game where we level up that fast to become like God. I don't know. 
My kids have some game. I'm not sure what it is, but they're like Neanderthal people, and they're like taming dinosaurs and stuff. It's this crazy game. It's like they've got all these pet, pet brontosaurus, uh, pet tyrannosaurus rex, you know. They got, okay, anyways, but like after two weeks of having this game, they reached God level where they can't die. They can like literally swim into the ocean, and a megalodon, if you know what that is, it's like this giant shark, can't eat them and kill them because they've achieved God level in two weeks. And we think that's the way Jesus is. You know, Jesus, he's going to have us achieve God level in two weeks, and the process is all going to be done, and we're going to be complete. That's not the way it works. He puts us through trials, and the more trials we go through, the better we become in enduring, and the stronger we get in our spiritual walk. We become stronger for Jesus because those trials work in us not only to develop perseverance, but also to mature us and help us to not lack anything. I mean, this is the story of, of Joseph and his life. If you know who Joseph is, he's a dude from the Old Testament book of Genesis. We talked about him a few weeks ago, but uh, um, he was the poster boy for God using trials to mature and develop them, develop him. You know, and it started off with he had a dream. He had this dream that all his brothers and sisters and his mom and dad were going to come and bow down before him and his brothers and sisters, they didn't like that dream. And that, so they said, you know what, we got to do something with this boy Joseph because ain't no way we come in to bow down before him. So they beat him up and they sold him into slavery and sent him off to Egypt. And he ends up in Egypt serving at this guy Potiphar's house. And he's doing a great job and Potiphar loves Joseph and he promotes him to being the head of the, his household. Well, one day Potiphar's wife takes a look at Joseph and says, hey Joseph, you want to come party in my bedroom without any clothes on? And Joseph is like, no, I don't want to do that. And so she's a little bit ticked off that he said no to her advances, and so she accuses him of rape. And so Joseph gets thrown in jail, and Joseph's in jail. Meanwhile, this whole time, think about that. You're in jail. You're going through all of this, and you had a dream that you were going to have your family bowing down to you, and now you are sitting in an Egyptian prison rotting. Men show up, a baker and a cupbearer, and they have a dream, and you interpret their dream, and they say, oh, we're going to tell Pharaoh about you. Don't worry, we got your back. And he sat there for more years. And if that were me, and I have a feeling if that were you, I think that most of us would have walked away from God a long time before we got to the place where we were standing as second in command of the nation of Egypt. Because we would have said to ourselves, God, why? I was supposed to be somebody great. You showed me the dream of my brothers and my, my mom and my dad bowing down before me. And here I am sitting in a prison in Egypt. Nobody knows I'm here and I'm just rotting. Forget it. God, you're trash. But it's those process that Joseph went through of persevering through those trials that developed him into the person that was able to be second in command of the nation of Egypt. So the point of the trial is to make you and me complete. God knows something. God knows something more than what we know as parents or we forget as parents, and that is that if we are just handed everything in life and everything is easy for us, it does damage to our ability to handle the things that life throws at us. 
A study by the University of Buffalo verified this. They found a clear correlation between the number of adversity someone faced and that person's ability to handle high-pressure situations. They found that going through trials developed areas of the brain that are connected to our mental toughness. And see, that's what faith is about. Faith is about going through things, going through situations, going through circumstances in life that directly speak to us and say, God is not there and he doesn't care about you and he doesn't love you. And it's making it through those things, pushing through those things to the other side and being able to look back and say, God did all of that in this time. And we never are going to have a strong faith in life, in Jesus and in God, If he's just out there doling out whatever we want, you need some cash, here you go. You want a big house, here you go. You want a nice car, here you go. All that's going to create is monster Christians who think everything should be theirs, who, 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 who are entitled to stuff. But Jesus wants to show us that persevering through the trials that come in life mature our faith and prepare us for the things that God has for us in the future. And so a lot of times, you know what our prayer should be? Instead of, God, take this trial, this tribulation, this hard thing from me, our prayer should be, God, what are you trying to develop in me? Because we can see the end of a trial much quicker when we see the work that God is trying to do inside of us in that trial, in that difficult time. And so we need to endure with joy. Why is it joyful? Because ultimately, at the end of it, we're going to, now this doesn't mean that, you know, you show up happy, hey, everybody, I'm so excited, I got diagnosed with cancer this week, and I only have six months to live. That's not what we're saying, okay? But what we're saying is that, yeah, we can say that the situation is tough, that the situation is terrible, that the situation, you know, is not something that we want to be, that we want to be happy about or enjoy. But God is doing something in that And that should be something to bring us joy in life as we face the trials and the tribulations that we face each and every single day. And God wants to develop that in you. He wants to develop that in me. And so we've got to keep that as our perspective. God is doing something to complete us, to make us who he wants us to be for the things he has called us to do. So with that, let's pray. Thank you for joining us on the FAM Church podcast. FAM Church is here to connect people to Christ. If you live in or are visiting the Lakeland, Florida area, we would love for you to join us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. You can also check us out online at myfamchurch.com. Thank you again and have an amazing day.